0: Welcome back everybody to another episode of Gen Ed. This week we're super excited to be joined by Anastasia Velikovskaya, who is a fellow um, volunteer at WAVE and has taught one of our courses in the past. So Anastasia, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for inviting me on here. so my name is anastasia i go to barnard college of columbia university and i'm currently on the pre-med track studying neuroscience and behavior i am looking to pursue a career in child psychiatry uh, but i'm not sure yet but i'm very passionate about abnormal psych
2: yes so in this podcast we will be talking about some difficult and sensitive topics that might be a little hard for some listeners Um, to hear. Um, So I'm just giving a quick warning that um, this might be triggering for some. We will be discussing um, mental illness and some other mental disorders that go along with this um, topic of abnormal psych.
0: So with that disclaimer out of the way, Anastasia, what do we mean by abnormal psychology and, and mental disorder?
1: That's a very interesting question because there is actually no consensus definition of abnormality. Um, With that being said, there are some agreed upon indicators of abnormality. So, for example, some indicators include subjective distress, maladaptiveness, statistical deviancy, violation of standards of society, social discomfort, irrationality and unpredictability, and dangerousness. Um, however, not one element is sufficient in and of itself to define or determine abnormality. And in fact, what is considered to be abnormal actually changes as society changes. And it's very dependent on society as well, um, because abnormal behavior involves social judgments that are based on values and expectations, um, of society at large, um, Similarly, with mental disorder, um, you know, it can be a little bit subjective when we consider what is a mental disorder and what is not. But there is an agreement among the scientific community about which conditions are disorders and which are not. And generally, the definition for mental disorder is defined as a syndrome that is present in an individual and that involves clinically significant disturbance in behavior, emotion, regulation, or cognitive function. And mental disorders are associated with significant distress or disability in key areas of functioning, such as social, occupational, or any other activities. Um, and it's also important to note that the dysfunctional pattern of behavior that we typically see does not stem from social deviance or conflicts that a person has with society as a whole. So those are the definitions of abnormality and mental disorders. Yeah. Um, so how would we like classify or
2: diagnose these different mental disorders?
1: Yeah, so in the United States, we currently use um, a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM for short, and it's used to diagnose um, any mental disorder. It's published by the American Psychiatric Association, um, and we are currently on version five of the DSM because... It's definitely a work in progress. Um, It has been revised several times and it does change as society changes. So um, as of now, the DSM-5 is the current version that psychiatrists and psychologists use to diagnose a mental disorder.
0: So Anastasia, I've heard of the DSM-5 referenced before and most of the time when I've heard it referenced, it's been in the news with some sort of controversial position or definition Could you talk about real quick any of the controversies that have been associated with the DSM in the past?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, So one controversy that I can just think of off the top of my head is um, homosexuality was actually in the DSM before. And in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association removed the diagnosis of homosexuality from the second edition of its DSM. And another change that I can think of that was a little controversial actually um, was an important change that happened from the DSM 4 to the DSM 5. So, with the eating disorder, um, anorexia nervosa, one of the criteria in the DSM 4 was that um, cessation of menstruation needed to have happened in order for a person to be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa and right now in the DSM-5 that is no longer a requirement so of course now prepubescent girls and people who don't have periods can be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa so that is a very important change um, that is reflected in the DSM-5. And Dan, I know that you actually study history, so could you speak a little bit more about how the views of mental illness changed over time?
0: Yeah, as you've mentioned with the updates to the DSM, our views on, on mental illness has have changed dramatically, especially in the last 100 years or so. For most of human history, um, views on mental illness have been pretty... Uh, pretty um, standardized and in a very not good way in a very unhealthy way um obviously history doesn't move linearly so some societies were um more tolerant than others but for the most part um until about a century ago um mental illness didn't really exist as a concept people didn't really understand how um how emotions worked and how our our brains function and so most of the time when when people exhibited these abnormal behaviors they were chalked up to evil spirits or possession or some sort of um supernatural or evil force and so people who had mental illness were often treated very poorly um and yeah Um, and, and as I, as I mentioned, um, these, these views stayed more or less the same for centuries where, um, you know, you read ancient sources and they'll mention things about people being possessed by evil spirits, which we tend to interpret as someone having mental illness. And even just a few centuries ago in Europe, it was very common to, um, to try to perform exorcisms on people um, with mental illness or to just lock them up in asylums and um, and just kind of push them out of sight, out of mind. Luckily, um, in, more, in more recent years, we've become a lot more understanding and try to actually help these people rather than lock them away or condemn them as being, you know, possessed. Um so obviously that's that's a very positive change that we've seen over the last few years. Alana, all this talk of of how our views have have changed over time um and and how mental illness has been viewed so negatively for so many years makes me wonder how how did these mental illnesses come about in the first place? How how did they come about and then how did they stick around even though we kind of perceive them as being negative attributes.
2: Yeah, so kind of a general overview is that mental illnesses were even um, in like the Nathandrel times. So hundreds of years ago, um, researchers are actually comparing like the evolution of mental illness by looking at these Nathandrel and then like cure, cure um current um, human genomes so they're actually studying these and um for one example um they found that the um schizophrenia is actually um they found it in uh, like western europe currently and they're um they think it actually helped them with the cold. So they would see these like in the genes of people, um, who are living in these cold temperatures. So they think that the gene that holds like schizophrenia and it is, um, like, uh, polygenic. So there's like different phenotypes, which influences more than one gene. That's, um, like different disorders but with um schizophrenia they think that this gene will actually help them survive in like these colder temperatures and that's really crazy um to think but anyway um So these, uh, as I said before, the psychiatric disorders all are polygenic. And so this means like it's influenced more than one gene. And this can involve hundreds or thousands of genes and DNA mutations, which I can explain later. But mental illnesses may still be around despite of and because of natural selection. Um and so researchers are currently looking at the genomes of various people and trying to connect mental illness with different um environ like environmental factors and societal um conditions. So Anastasia do you have anything to like extend off of that?
1: Yeah, uh first, you know, I think the question about how and why abnormal psychology exists um through an evolutionary perspective is It's very fascinating. It perplexes still a lot of researchers, a lot of scientists. And, um, you know, it sheds light, um, you know, in the past, um, you know, few decades. It's interesting to note that a lot of mental disorders can actually be viewed as beneficial to our survival. uh, But, you know. The cost is that it, they would be detrimental to our mental health, which natural selection may not even consider or care for so long as we survive, because humans are wired for survival. And, you know, when we're thinking about mental disorders like PTSD, um, we all have a fight or flight alarm response in our brain. And it was originally designed for primitive survival. So the part of our brain called the amygdala which processes fear, it gets triggered by just the merest hint of a possible danger. And its job is to protect you, not to keep you comfortable. So it would rather set off a thousand false alarms and create a thousand wishes of fear and anxiety when there is no problem at all than miss one that is real. So... People who have PTSD, for example, get, they get very anxious and fearful with neutral stimuli like loud noises um, that remind them of their traumatic experience. And even though this startle response is very distressing, you know, looking at it from an evolutionary perspective, it's actually very beneficial for survival uh, because the amygdala gets triggered and prepares for this fight or flight response, even when there is no real danger. And, you know, with trauma, uh, frequently dissociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personality disorder, can develop. And that is a disorder where individuals develop multiple identities and amnesia as a way to cope with the trauma they have experienced in childhood. So one common symptom of DID is depersonalization, which is the sensation where A person feels as if they are outside of their body, floating above, uh, watching themselves. And this also frequently happens during a traumatic experience. And a lot of people, you know, experience this. And this can also be viewed as, you know, very beneficial because when a person literally can't handle the trauma and pain that they are going through, they completely dissociate. And, you know, going on with anxiety disorders as well, like specific phobias. A lot of people have a phobia of spiders or snakes or heights or flying. And as a result, they avoid these objects or situations. So, you know, these phobias, even though they're very distressful, they can actually keep us safer because of this avoidance. And it's interesting to note that people who have a specific phobia, they usually aren't afraid of things that are completely harmless, like flowers or chocolate.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting. And just going off of the phobia part, um, I actually read how trauma can actually genetically be passed on um, through Your genes. So in one case, I read the novel, It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin. And he's a psychologist. And so in one case, he had um, one of his client or one of his patients, she um, had panic attacks often. And when these happened, she felt like her heart rate was like kind of being slowed down and she felt um very isolated and actually freezing cold that's how she described it as and once they um went back um through their like family history she actually found that one of her family members actually passed away like during the titanic and her mom was just like a baby on board and she ended up living so it's crazy how you can think um like, how our trauma responses can be um, passed down genetically. And this is also seen after the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers. There have been pregnant women traumatized by those attacks, and they have passed on a stress to, like, their newborn babies. So these mothers who experience um, post-traumatic stress disorder, PCSD, during pregnancy, um, they had an increased level of Cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and so with this, um, the mother, um, it passes on to the baby like through the placenta barrier, and so like these children, they had a much higher level of cortisol because of the stress that the moms um, had with these 9/11 attacks, and so this cortisol is a stress hormone, so it increases your blood pressure and increases like your blood um, glucose, and So like this increases the chance that the child will later on develop stress disorders and they're still keeping track, like people are still researching this. So it is possible that the stress um, certain people experience could actually be passed down genetically. So it's not just one factor that might put someone at an increase of developing a mental disorder. Um, There is a common myth that Um, hormone imbalances actually cause different mental disorders. And this isn't necessarily true. It was pushed in the 1900s. Psychiatrics, psychiatrists, psychiatrists, I mean, they actually promoted using um, like different hormonal um, therapy to treat different mental um, disorders that are still used today, like using um, serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine. And the pharmaceutical companies were actually the ones to mislead the public with promoting this chemical imbalance to sell, like, antidepressants, like SSRIs, and these are known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And so this hypothesis isn't really true. It's not supported by many today. Um, In the early 2000s, um, this imbalance theory was, like, tackled again and found that the theory isn't present um most psychiatric disorders they result from a combination a complex interaction of like physical psychological social factors and the treatment might be directed like towards these so they found that like um the depletion of serotonin may aggravate depression but it won't necessarily cause it and so these pharmaceutical companies were so pushing um like selling drugs more that like this I, this myth of a hormone imbalance causes mental illness. When that isn't true, um lots of it has to play in like how we develop like depression. Um, it includes like biochemistry and genetics, personality traits. Um so it has a lot. It just it's not one thing, and one hormone can't really cause it, has a lot to do with like outside factors as well. So now that I'm talking so much,
1: um, that's really interesting. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I do. I wanted to. I wanted to add what you said about medication and pharmaceuticals. I think that's so fascinating. I also, y- you know, taking a lot of mental disorders are very biological in nature, like you said. I mean, there there are a lot of factors that you know are at interplay, um, and taking medication, actually you know, is very hard for certain individuals, not only because of the side effects that these medications have, or that these medications don't help people at all, just because, you know, with antidepressants, for example, not everyone who takes antidepressants get helped. Um, And I I actually read a memoir, uh, which I highly recommend for everyone. It's called An Unquiet Mind uh, by Kay Jameson. And um, you know, she's a clinical psychologist, and she was explaining how she was, you know, battling with bipolar disorder. But interestingly, what she said was she didn't, you know, frequently she stopped taking medication. And it wasn't only because of the side effects that this medication, you know, gave her, but also because she felt the most productive and creative than she has ever been during her manias. Um, which is so interesting and this kind of ties back to the conversation on evolution um, because you know, even Einstein had bipolar disorder. And we usually don't think about mental disorders in a beneficial or you know in a positive light. But you know with bipolar disorder, for example, Manias lead to a lot of creativity and productivity and innovation and research. And um, that is a very big reason for why a lot of people stop taking medication because they miss their manias.
0: So we've been talking for a little while now on kind of the various factors that, that combine to affect us mentally and how, as you guys have been talking about, how many of these um, conditions have beneficial um, aspects to them, and it makes me wonder. Kind of as we were talking about, you know, developing phobias based off of you know spiders and such, and 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 kind of those benefits like that. Those are clear clear benefits in a kind of survival scenario, right? Um, but my question is, what happens Once we're out of a survival scenario, when we're in a society, when we're surrounded with other people and need to interact with other people, how do these various conditions, Anastasia, interact with the people in the societies around us?
1: So I think, yeah, I mean, that's very interesting because when we think about society at large, the media plays a very important role um, in you know, teaching society about mental illness. And a lot of times the media actually, you know, perpetuates stigma that everybody then has on mental illness. So, you know, when we're thinking about, let's say, mass shootings, which are unfortunately so frequent in the United States, um, a lot of times there is this, you know, sensation and people say mental illness um, is to blame, you know. The quote, "mental illness pulls the trigger, not the gun," and you know that is a very controversial, you know, topic. Every time it's brought up in society, and it's interesting to note that the American Psychiatric Association actually doesn't blame mental illness um, for mass shootings and for these violent events. And they have done many studies um, to show that people with mental health issues only commit a minuscule percentage of mass shootings and account for less than 1% of annual gun homicides. And in fact, people with serious mental illnesses are more likely to be the victims of violence. So, you know, the media sometimes does perpetuate the stigma of mental illness and even in movies as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know that just in my life experience, I've seen a lot of Movies or heard of movies or TV shows that definitely paint those with mental illness in a very poor light. Um, a recent example being the movie Split, which you know f- is a horror movie featuring somebody with DID. Um, I find it really interesting that it. I mean, it's it's not very surprising, right? That that the media finds these people with mental illness as an easy scapegoat it's an easy way to to not really have to deal with an issue because you can just say oh the person who did it has mental you know suffers from a mental illness um which i do think we're getting a little bit better at handling um fortunately because it is a very negative and a very um problematic way to to view people and to view the world um I was also wondering, Anastasia, like, are there any, when I look at, say, America, we have a lot of mass shootings and we blame a lot of these mass shootings on mental illness, um, even though presumably mental illness rates are similar across the world. And yet we have a much higher rate of mass shootings. So I was wondering, Anastasia, how do different cultures deal with mental illness in um, in today's world are there societies who um, maybe perpetuate certain mental illnesses more than others
1: yeah that is um, a very important question because culture definitely shapes you know the clinical presentation of many of these mental disorders and there are culture specific disorders as well you know, and even just thinking about the DSM, the DSM is only used in the United States. So there there is controversy over, you know, how some disorders like PTSD are very westernized and how the criteria and the symptoms aren't, you know, they don't include a lot of cultures. Um And, you know, with your question on, you know, how culture impacts the manifestation of mental disorders, that's a very important question. And, you know, rates of mental illness definitely vary across countries. And Japan, for example, has the highest um, rate of eating disorders. And that just goes to show how, you know, culture has a clear impact on society's view of beauty and you know, Japan, along with other countries, including America, often idealize this extreme thinness that, you know, girls and women need to strive for. And these cultural pressures that exist all over the world, um, it can explain the female to male ratio of anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa to be 10 to 1. Um, So, you know, even though males can definitely and do have eating disorders, there is this, you know, it's very much skewed um, to, you know, girls and women, which goes to show how big of a role culture can definitely play in causing a lot of these mental disorders to, um, you know, get to exhibit in different people.
0: I was just going to say, as you said earlier, Anastasia, I mean, as of a couple decades ago, it wasn't in the U.S. You couldn't even diagnose a man with anorexia. The the conditions were such that that just wasn't even possible
1: yes exactly yeah and you know that also goes and ties into you know how you know there's a lot of stigma you know especially surrounding men with eating disorders because you know a lot of times men who do have eating disorders um, feel embarrassed to go get help to go to a therapist Um, But, you know, our society, as you said, is changing for the better to try to be very inclusive when we're thinking about mental disorders and not to lump specific groups of people in different categories.
2: Yeah, for sure. Just going off of that stigma you brought up um, in our culture like some people tend to like romanticize different mental illnesses and i think that's very predominant while on social media um especially um how dan brought up like the movie split we also see that with like the um, movie and novel 13 reasons why the author who wrote that book didn't intend for this i guess idealization of the movie or the show to occur. He don't want that to happen. And we see like, especially in the US, higher rates of suicide in teenagers. Like every one in four teenagers face mental illness. And I think it's something very important to talk about. And through talking about it, this is how like we can eventually break the mental illness stigma. And by educating ourselves and talking more about like what we're doing right now, um, how to use the appropriate terms and to not offend anyone who actually is facing problems with um, a mental illness and just to show compassion with others. I think that's eventually how we can break the stigma. Anastasia, do you have anything to add
1: on to that? Yeah, I think, you know, what you mentioned, what you and Dan mentioned with the media and how that impacts mental illness, I think that's a very important conversation to have. And, you know, 13 reasons why a very controversial conversation. TV show um, did result in an increase in suicide, you know, among teenage girls, and the phrase actually, you know, this is actually known as copycat suicide, or the Werther effect, and the Werther effect, the, the phenomenon, this term was coined in 1974, and it refers to the phenomenon that humans tend to copy behavior, whether it's healthy or destructive, And copycat suicide is most definitely blamed on the media. And, you know, not only with 13 Reasons Why, but also with celebrities. When we hear about a celebrity dying by suicide, it's plastered all over the news. It's on every news channel, all social media accounts, and everybody knows about it. And that can definitely, you know, impact this rise in deaths by suicide. And, you know, in Austria, they actually had a similar problem um, in the late, you know, in the late 1980s where people would, there was an uptick in dying by suicide in the subway um, station. And there was a lot of media coverage on that. And what they did um, in Austria, they decided to stop covering and stop including these stories in the media. Or if they did... Then don't emphasize them so much, and they found a decrease in suicides um, once they, you know, implemented that. So the way that media portrays mental illness, whether that's in actual news or in TV shows and movies like Split, is very important, and it's definitely something we need to, you know, get better at um, as a, with a society as a whole.
0: So Anastasia, we our society is clearly not in a great place regarding our views of, of mental illness. As we've talked about, it's certainly gotten better um, than when it was. That's not a particularly high bar to cross. But um, my question to you is, how do we create a healthier view of mental illness? How do we break some of these stigmas while also staying away from romanticizing some of these behaviors?
1: yeah that's a very um important question i think that talking about it more and normalizing it as well normalizing that you know people have mental illnesses and it varies the severity of symptoms vary as well and it's not something that should be viewed as a taboo in society it should you know going to therapy shouldn't be viewed as a taboo and you know one way we could do this is you know, making sure that every school in America has, um, has a mental health office with um, psychologists and social workers just to give people that support. And, you know, making information, especially, you know, in TV shows, realistic. And to ensure, you know, to not glorify um, any mental illnesses while we do that as well. Um, and, you know, specifically with when 13 Reasons Why came out, a lot of high schools actually banned their students from watching it. Or they sent their parents an email home saying, you know, if you watch it, you need to watch it with the parent, but don't come to school talking about it. And on the one hand, you know, they are worried about this phenomenon of copycat suicide. But, you know, I think so long as schools offer people the space the safe space to talk about these issues and talk about people's feelings then um, our view as a society should definitely improve do um do you alana or dan have any other ideas for maybe how we can go about bettering our society's view on mental illness um, I think for me, just
2: talking about it more, like I personally, I go to therapy, and I'm a huge advocate for it. I love it. I think everyone should at some point in their life, it's not something it, to hide about or cover up. I think just to talk about it, because even if you're not facing um, like mental illness or depression, it's just good to have a safe space where you can talk to someone. and. Um just going off of that, if our listeners here ever need to talk to someone, we will be including a helpline um, in the description below. The number for um, this is 1-800-662-HELP-4357. So just please um, reach out and talk to someone if you are struggling or you just need someone to talk to.
0: I just wanted to shout out Alana, who, now multiple times over the course of our last few episodes, has talked about her experiences going to therapy and has advocated for that and normalized that. And I think it's that kind of behavior that that gets society as a whole to to a better place. So I just wanted to applaud Alana for for doing that. Um, I really respect that. <laughs>
2: Well, we also have to applaud Anastasia for coming here and sharing all of her wonderful knowledge and experience,
1: and teaching this course from Wave. Yeah, she taught this amazing course. Thank you both for thank you both for inviting me and for hosting this you know conversation to begin with. I think it's super important you know talking about abnormal psychology. Um, I think that's you know the right step to take. Yes, definitely. So
2: we would like to thank you again. And as we're wrapping up the episode, just keep out a look and check out WaveLF.org Wave Learning Festival to find more classes like this one. So we'll see you next week.